My friends, welcome to our third episode in my latest project, which is a history of the Christian Church, 2,000 years of Christian thought. Today, we're going to be looking at that figure from church history who lived at the turn of the second century, around about 100 AD to 165, Justin Martyr, sometimes referred to as the first defender of the faith. So welcome back to another, I hope, exciting episode of A History of the Christian Church. Join us as we explore his profound philosophical insights that brought about a continuing unyielding defense of his Christian faith. His impact still resonates today down through the annals of Christian and church history. So without further ado, let's embark on what I hope will be an enlightening journey for all of us through the life and thinking of Justin Martyr. Bye-bye for now. today's episode we meet Justin Martyr, also known by some as Justin the Philosopher, who lived around 100 AD to about 165 AD. He also is known for playing a significant role in the very early church as both an apologist and a Christian philosopher. Although most of Justin Martyr's works are lost to history, we do have several surviving texts, including two famous what are called apologies, defences of the Christian faith, and a dialogue that he wrote. His first apology, his most famous work probably, passionately defends the morality of the Christian life. In it he presents an ethical and philosophical argument to convince the then Roman Emperor Antonius to cease the persecution of the church. In a fascinating twist, Justin Martyr also anticipated what St. Augustine would later argue in the fact that he suggested that the true religion existed before even Christianity. He proposed that the seed of the revelation of God, in other words, the seed of Christianity, was the manifestation of the concept of the Logos in ancient history, predating Christ's incarnation. This allowed him to regard historical Greek philosophers, like Socrates and Plato, whom he studied extensively, by the way, as what you might almost call proto-Christians. He was born around AD 100, near the city of Shechem. You'll probably recognize that from the Old Testament biblical accounts, which was in an area called Nablus, which is Samaria, in fact, in modern-day Palestine. Justin was, in fact, a Greek-influenced, heavily Hellenized Samaritan. His family background also suggests a possible pagan heritage, as he was uncircumcised and identified himself as a Gentile. Speculations have arisen about his grandfather's Greek name, which was Bacchius, and his father's Latin name, Priscus, leading to theories of a settlement in Neapolis in the past, or perhaps descent from a Roman diplomatic community. In the opening of his book Dialogue, Justin recounts his early education, and he expresses dissatisfaction with his initial studies, saying that they lacked a belief system offering any theological or metaphysical inspiration. He experimented with various schools of thought. First he spent time with a Stoic philosopher, after which he decided he couldn't actually explain God's being, being referring to the essential nature of God. The Greek idea of God meant that him 
or perhaps even it, to exist, he must remain unchanging. They are often referred to also as what we call forms, and therefore they could not interact with the created world. Then after that he briefly spent a time with a peripatetic philosopher, who he said was overly focused on charging his fee, and later a Pythagorean philosopher, who demanded first that he must acquire knowledge in music, astronomy, geometry, before even beginning to teach him. Finally, he embraced conventional Platonism, after encountering a Platonist thinker in his local city. This experience led the foundation for his future writings. Writing in his dialogue with Trifo, and commenting on these early days, he says, The perception of material things quite overpowered me, and the contemplations of ideas furnished my mind with wings, so that in a little while I suppose that I have become wise, and such was my stupidity. I expected forthwith to look upon God, for this is the end of Plato's philosophy, he thought. Later in the same book, he records for us a chance encounter with an elderly man, possibly a Syrian Christian it would seem, who he met near the seashore one day. This encounter sparked a profound dialogue about the nature of God, wherein this elderly man emphasized the reliability of the testimony of the Old Testament prophets over the reasoning of any of these later so-called philosophers. In this old man's view, these ancient biblical individuals were righteous and beloved by God, and they preceded the esteemed philosophers even of this Greek age, never mind the present day. These prophets, he said, inspired by the Holy Spirit, foresaw and foretold events. Their writing, still surviving obviously at that time, and to this day of course, provided valuable insights into the beginning and the end of all things, matters, matters which he said, of course, which should be crucial for philosophers. The prophets were moved by truth rather than a desire for glory, he said. They spoke what they saw and what they heard, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Their credibility lay not in demonstrations, but in their status as witnesses to external truth which they themselves witnessed. Moving into the New Testament, the miracles they saw performed, miraculous events which were witnessed in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, they saw and they used them as a testimony to glorify the Creator and proclaiming His Son, of course, and the New Covenant perspective, so that in itself would set them apart from other false prophets. Justin was swayed by this elderly man's argument. He felt it was compelling, and he renounced both his previous religious faith and his philosophical background. He chose thereafter to dedicate his life to God, inspired by the aesthetic lives of the early Christians and the heroic examples of the martyrs that he was beginning to see appearing around him. Convinced of the moral and spiritual superiority of Christian doctrine, Justin decided to travel and spread the knowledge of Christianity as the one true religion. While tradition often places his conversion in Ephesus, it could in fact have occurred anywhere on his journey from Syria to Palestinia on to Rome. Justin thereafter adopted the guise of a Christian philosopher and embarked on a journey of teaching. During the later reign of Antonius Pius, he reached Rome and founded his own school there, with Tatian as one of his students. However, during the later 
prefecture of Marcus Aurelius's rule, he faced opposition, particularly from a cynic philosopher called Crescens. Crescens reported Justin to the authorities of the day, which led to him being tried before the urban prefect Junius Rusticus. Justin, along with six companions, including two slaves he had educated personally, namely a fellow called Elupistus and Herax, they all went under trial with him, and all were subsequently beheaded. While the exact year of his death remains uncertain, it is reasonably placed within the term of Rusticus, who we know governed between 162 and 168. The details of Justin's martyrdom are preserved in the court record of that trial. In the trial, Prefect Rusticus ordered them all to approach and sacrifice to the gods. Justin, resolute in his faith, replied that abandoning devotion towards God for such sinfulness was an act of someone not in their right mind. Threatened with merciless torture, Rusticus warned Justin to comply. In response, Justin, instead of succumbing, expressed a willingness to endure torture even for our Lord Jesus Christ, saying, In him alone lay salvation and the firm confidence at any impending trial. And in him he found firm confidence to face any impending trial. All the other martyrs echoed this same sentiment. They refused to gather to sacrifice to idols, proclaiming their identity lay in Christ. Rusticus then read the sentence. The court record says those unwilling to sacrifice to the gods and obey the emperor would be whipped and then beheaded according to the laws of the state. Undaunted, these guys proceeded to the place to be set apart for their execution, where they were indeed beheaded. Reports confirmed their martyrdom by saying they steadfastly confessed their faith in their saviour right up to the point of execution. When considering Justin's writings, the earliest reference to his work is found in the Orieto and the Grascos, written by his student Titian. In this work, Titian refers to Justin and describes him as the most admirable Justin. He quotes his sayings, noting that the cynic Christians had laid deliberate snares and traps for him. Irenaeus, who we look at in fact in the next episode, will later mention Justin martyrdom, and it is from there we get the account of it. And he also will identify Titian as his disciple, and he quotes Justin twice, showing his influence upon him. Tertullian, who we will also look at in a few weeks, in his writings later describes Justin as both a philosopher and a martyr, highlighting him as the earliest opponent of heresy in the Christian church. Additionally, Hippolytus and Methodus of Olympus also make references to him or quote Justin Martyr. Eusebius of Caesarea, the 4th century historian, famously provides a detailed account of Justin and his life and catalogues and quotes from several of his works. The main works of Justin Martyr recognised as authentic today are the following seven. One, his first apology, addressed to Antonius Pius and his sons and the Roman Senate. His second apology, addressed to the Roman Senate. His third, a discourse to the Greeks, which is a discussion with Greek philosophers on the character of their gods. Fourthly, a treatise on the sovereignty of God, 
in which he makes use of pagan authorities as well as Christians to debate this issue. Fifth, a work entitled The Psalmist. Sixth, a treaty in scholastic form on the soul. And then finally, his famous dialogue with Trifo. Eusebius implies that other works were indeed in circulation during his life, but that they have been lost to history. Titles lost included To St. Irenaeus, An Apology, Against Marcion, and A Refusion of All Heresies. The first two books in that main list of those seven publications I mentioned, Justin's First and Second Apology, are considered to be on a higher plane than the writings of any previous person in church history, even the Apostolic Fathers who we looked at last time. It is viewed by many, even today, as a masterful presentation of the Christian faith. Justin, throughout his post-conversion life, was resolutely opposed to paganism and had no time for attempts to merge Christian thinking with other religious worldviews. He gave his life after all rather than sacrifice to other gods. He was also very critical as what he saw as the stagnation of the original high point of Greek thought. He saw Christ as the fulfillment of that to which Greek thought was attempting to attain in its highest form, but only when it was the best of the early Greek thought. He did this by applying into his thinking the idea first developed clearly in John's Gospel of the word, the Logos, and he said that the Greek philosophers had in fact borrowed this idea from the Old Testament. Writing on this in his first apology, chapter 46, he says, We have been taught that Christ is the firstborn, and we have declared above that that he is the word of whom every race of men were partakers. And those who lived reasonably are Christians, even though they have been thought atheists, as among the Greeks, Socrates and Heraclitus, and men like them. He then develops his thinking further in his second apology. Reading from chapter 13, it tells us, I both boast and with all my strength strive to be found a Christian, not because the teachings of Plato are different from those of Christ, but because they are not in all respects similar as neither of those or the others. Stoics, poets and historians, for each man spoke well in proportion to the share they had of the spermatic word, seeing what it was related to. But they who contradict themselves on the more important points appear not to have possessed the heavenly wisdom and the knowledge which cannot be spoken again. Whatever things were rightly said among all men, they are the property of us Christians. For next to God we worship and love the word, who is from the unbegotten and ineffable God, since also he became man for our sakes, becoming a partaker of our sufferings, he might also bring us healings. For all the writers were able to see the realities darkly through the sowing of the implanted word that was in them. We shall see how he later develops this thought fully and in a sense drops some of the Greek theological overtones. Justin's theology. On the three main points of his theology, we would consider all to be orthodox. Firstly, let's consider his theology of the resurrection. There are fragments of Justin's treaty on the resurrection preserved in a piece of work called the Sacra Parallela, a Byzantine text which quotes from the Bible and is illustrated with mainly Greek comments, some of them from Justin. 
The surviving fragments that relate to him begin by asserting the truth being inerrant in God and requires no witness. However, due to human weakness, God allowed for arguments to be presented on his behalf to convince those who doubt. The text refutes baseless deductions and argues that the resurrection of the body is both possible and fitting for God. It also emphasizes the presence of the biblical prophetic writings as evidence to support this claim. In another fragment from that work credited to Justin, positive proof of the resurrection is provided by citing examples not only of Christ but by others who were brought back to life. And yet another fragment he is seen to delve into the nature of the resurrection, clarifying that it pertains to the body. These New Testament doctrines are contrasted to those of the old Greek philosopher's ideas, and it is linked to the new command to maintain moral purity through the love of God and Christ, rather than through the acquisition of worldly wisdom, or even obedience to the law. On his theology of the deity of Christ, well, on this Justin Martyr believed his teaching were in line with the wider Christian church at that time. He does recognize a split is developing among an orthodox perspective, but mainly on the topics of the millennium and the return of Christ, and how and in what way to deal with the more lenient forms of Jewish Christianity. Surprisingly, Justin was relatively okay with the latter, as long as those people didn't interfere with the freedom of Gentiles to be converted to the faith of Christianity. Ideas about the millennium and the return of Christ didn't come up much with him, and certainly not in relation to Judaism and the Christian Jewish sects, but he was comfortable with the concept of the Christian end time theology in general that was being developed at that time. Back then, many Jewish leaders weren't actually appreciate of Christian Jewish sects, and Justin, well, on some level, he wasn't an exception. Some of his apparently anti-Judaic arguments even get blamed by some for sparking the beginnings of Christian anti-Semitism. However, it should be noted that Justin's strong opinions against Judaism were mainly theological and not by any way as, as intense as many of his contemporaries who tried to take things to a whole new level, even advocating persecution. So whilst Justin wasn't exactly embracing the Jewish community, his views in the book titled Dialogue with Trifo were tame compared to the later extreme positions held by others. Justin was personally open to tolerating the situation as long as its adherents didn't impede the freedom of Gentile converts. And then finally, his interpretation of Scripture. Justin, when expanding upon the Gospel text, believed them to be an accurate recording of the fulfillment of prophecy. He often combined quotations of the prophets of Israel from the Old Testament with the New Testament Gospels to demonstrate a proof from prophecy of the Christian preaching of the Gospel. The importance which Justin attaches to the words of the prophets, which he regularly quotes with the formulation, It is written, shows his high regard for the Old Testament scriptures. The majority view among most scholars is that Justin considered the accounts of the apostles to be accurate historical records of the events described and prophesied in what he believed was the divinely inspired Old Testament writings, particularly in relation to the coming of the Messiah. 
However, the very least we can say about Justin's writings is that they constitute, still to this day, a storehouse of the earliest Christian interpretation of the Old Testament prophetic scriptures. The truth of the prophets, he declares, compels our agreement. He considered the Old Testament to be an inspired guide and a counsellor, which would ultimately be fulfilled, revealed and fulfilled within the New Testament. When writing later of his conversion to Christianity by this Christian philosopher he meets, he paraphrases the conversation that he had saying this, There existed long before this time certain men more ancient than all those who are esteemed philosophers, both righteous and beloved by God, who spoke by the divine spirit and foretold events that would take place and which are now taking place. They are called prophets. These alone both saw and announced the truth to man, neither revering nor fearing any man, not influenced by a desire for glory, but speaking those things alone which they saw and which they heard, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Their writings are still extant, and he who has read them is very much helped in his knowledge of the beginning and the end of all things. And those events which have happened and those which are happening compel you to assent to the utterances made by then. Justin then writes, telling of his own experience and his response to this, says this, Upon hearing this, straight away a flame was kindled in my soul, and a love of the prophets and of all those men who were friends of Christ possessed me. And whilst revolving his words in my mind, I find this philosophy alone to be safe and profitable. Justin, in his writing, listed the following events as fulfillments of biblical prophecy. In fact, he's the first to do so, or at very least, he's the first to document these facts. He, messianic scriptures which he identified and qualified are the following. 1. The prophecies concerning the Messiah and the particulars of his life. 2. The prophetic foretelling of the destruction of Jerusalem. 3. The Gentiles accepting Christianity. 4. Isaiah's prediction that Jesus would be born of a virgin. Micah mentioning Bethlehem as the place of his birth. 6. Zechariah forecasting the Messiah's entry into Jerusalem on the foal of an ass, a donkey in other words. And finally, he absolutely interprets the second coming of Daniel as being an interpretation of Daniel chapter 7. It's important to recognize that through all this, Justin still anchored his Christian faith in his Greek heritage, which means that when he became a Christian, he did not renounce all philosophy. He just became a better philosopher, a true philosopher, some would say. He said that the relationship between the philosopher and Christ is in fact the relationship between the incomplete and the complete, between that which is perfect and that which is imperfect. In fact, Christ perfects it. So while Justin remained positive towards his Greek past, he was not bound by it in any way. The idea of the Logos, the Word, certainly did give insight into an understanding of the philosopher's view of God, but now he said the Word himself had appeared in the Incarnation, the person of Christ. He said the imperfect must be tested and corrected and completed by the perfect, which is God in Christ, he said. 
Justin later would in fact become highly critical of the later Greek philosophical schools and thought, that which came to be known as the Neoplatonic movement, saying, Reason directs those who are truly pious and philosophical to love and honour only the truth, therefore declining not in any way to follow the tradition or the Greek opinions of his day. He's happy to still align himself with the likes of the early Greek philosophers like Socrates and he said they shouldn't really be called atheists because they were the ones, although they rejected the pagan gods, people like Socrates, he said, were never actually atheists in the true sense of the word in that they had an understanding of the Logos at that time at the level God had revealed that as truth to them but added that Christ was vastly superior, of course, to Socrates, adding that no one would trust Socrates as to die for his doctrine. But in Christ, he says, we not only have philosophers and scholars believing, but also ordinary uneducated people, and from across all the groups of people, many have died for their faith. There is no barrier to God now, according to Justin, unlike the earlier Greeks who felt that this insight, the Greek philosophical insight, even the Logos, only belonged in the hands of the elite as they would describe virtuous classes. Justin's approach of seeing continuity between his Greek past and his Christian faith was something that continued in the church by the likes of Clement and Oregon at Alexander. However, as we later discover in a few weeks, Tertullian will find that he opposes this view quite vigorously. So what can we say about him in the end? A hugely important figure? Well, the ultimate testimony, I think, is in that the end he demonstrated the authenticity of his belief by, like many Christians before, and sadly since, he was willing to die for his faith. Thank you for joining me. I do hope you'll tune in when we return next week in our history of the Christian Church, 2,000 years of Christian thought, as we continue our journey on this, I trust, enlightening passage through the annals of Christian history. Bye-bye for now. Okay then, there we are. Thank you for joining me. It's been great having you with me here today. Please return next week when we continue our journey through the history of the Christian Church, the 2,000 years of Christian thought, looking at that great giant again of the Christian faith, Irenaeus, and the stand he takes against the emerging heresies of his day. So it's great to have you with me. If you are enjoying it, then why not click on the subscribe and that way you'll get a notification of every single episode. It won't cost you a penny. And just as a quick aside, could I mention the fact is, this is the way I now make my living. I'm trusting that there's enough people out there to value what I'm doing, to maybe go over to Patreon and to pay forward, if you like, for the future episodes to come. 
Without that community of people supporting me in this way, then none of the teaching that I do and make available on the internet and all the podcast platforms and YouTube, etc., none of it would be possible if it wasn't for those people who have chosen to support me in this way. So a special thanks to them and a special thanks to you for being here. And I do trust I'll see you back here again next time. Bye-bye for now.